Welcome to episode 256 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. So for our podcast this week, we're going to talk about creativity and the neuroscience of improvisation. So over the last decade, the field of improvisational neuroscience has really taken off, um, and neuroscience in general, but uh, in this particular area that we're interested this week, uh, we're talking specifically about uh, creativity and uh, neuroscience in regards to when human beings are, are uh, functioning in an improvisational uh, situation. So, of course, the uh, one of the greatest improvisational art forms is jazz, and uh, I myself have uh, a, a lot of experience uh, with jazz. Just uh, at, at one point, thought perhaps I would be a professional musician in my you know my naive you know 20 something self for a while you were a professional musician for a while yes i i did sort of cobble together a living playing gigs around boston so i i'd I'd rate that as semi-professional because it was almost almost possible but but not quite but nonetheless i was you know working musician for a time so uh, and and really quite enjoyed that that year that I was a working musician, a you know obviously struggling uh, and and uh, making uh, not a ton of money doing it, but nonetheless uh, booking gigs and and going to clubs and watching the sunrise many many mornings. So uh, at any rate, the sort of brain activity around the creation of improvisational music, uh, I think is, is really interesting. There was a, uh, a paper uh, called Neural Substrates of Spontaneous Musical Performance, an FMRI study of jazz improvisation uh, that was published in 2008. Uh, by 2008. So this is an older article. Too. It is an older older article. Yes, uh, it has recently resurfaced uh, because of uh, uh, some reporting done by CNN, and uh, um, I've I've seen references to it. You know, sort of across the interwebs uh, mm -hmm. in the intervening years. So it's research that has uh, been uh, built on over time. But the the initial publication was. Uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago in, in 2008. Uh, and it was done by a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Charles Lim, who I believe also has a TED talk on the topic. Uh, but it looks into the neural substrates that underlie spontaneous musical performance um, by examining improvisation in professional jazz pianists using uh, the aforementioned functional MRI. So, um, the, the purpose of this paper was really to set the cognitive context that enables uh, spontaneous creative activity. So what is, what is the context in the brain, uh, the neurological un underpinnings of uh, improvis improvisation and, and sort of uh, uh, how does the mind prepare itself to do this work. If you uh, look at the paper uh, accompanying that paper, there are 
uh, some really interesting uh, MRI images of these uh, these musicians who are, uh, you know, playing the piano while their their brains are being scanned. Uh, and in particular, Dr. Lim found that the part of the brain that uh, is responsible for inhibition uh, and and control, that part of the brain becomes dormant um, in this in this particular context, while the part of the brain that uh, allows us to express ourselves uh, becomes more active. So it's a fairly complex um, uh, outline. Uh, that that characterizes this improvis improvisational state, and uh, uh, if I keep saying that, I'll be able to pronounce it's it eventually. A John. And and uh, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that you know this this control, this inhibition center would be would be shut down during during the state um, because you know you 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 could see how sort of this judgment. Uh, you know, sort of critical uh, zone would would pro prohibit you from from entering a flow state, right? You know that that state at which you're you're spontaneously creating. Dirk, you you uh, uh, you know looked at this as as well. Looked at this article. Um, what what were your initial takeaways on this? Uh, you know, I have I have some follow up ideas, but I want to stop there and and uh, and come to you for your thoughts. Sure. I mean, it ties into some things that we talk about regularly on the show, and I think even on the last show, about how we're really understanding the human animal, the human condition, and, and human behavior. And this is this is a great example of it. And so you mentioned already how this research shows parts of the brain that are more active or more, more deactive. I don't know if deactive is a word, but, um, <laughs> you know, when, when performing in, in this improvisational way, and in, in the specific example of of jazz music, and and it's 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 just sort of another brick in the road towards our understanding humans not as a black mystical box of wonder, but as an understandable, um, computationally understandable and perhaps predictable uh, thing and being, um, which which I think is all all very interesting. However, um, the 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 spin that this article was taking was really about creativity. And, I, I, you know, Dr. Lim talked about a number of different things. And, and, you know, outside of just this article, Dr. Lim has also done some more recent research into hip-hop and expanded this all, uh, for example. But um, in, in talking about creativity, there we have a traditional notion of right-brain thinking and left-brain thinking. That the right brain is the creative side of the brain and the left side of the brain is the analytical side of the brain. A lot of people have made a lot of money uh, writing books, you know, doing frameworks. I mean, we, we even, um, here at the studio, we've spent a little time with the Hermann Brain Dominance Instrument, which is a, a specific tool developed in the 1970s that is typing people in part based on right brain versus left brain. And it, 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 in the stereotypical traditional example, identifying the right brain as the quote-unquote creative side of the brain. What this research is um, exhibiting scientifically is that that's not how creativity works. Creativity is the product of both quote-unquote sides of the brain operating in, in harmony, operating dynamically, operating together. And and that's great because it's it's taking us down a path of better understanding ourselves. And, uh, you know, the, the work of Ned Hermann in, in the 1970s and of other people of trying to capture a, a, 
a snapshot of humans, trying to understand things like creativity, those are useful steps in the road, but they're all trying to see their way through, you know, this misty, cloudy reality of, of, of guessing, of not really having empirical uh, data, not having good science behind it. And now we're getting good science on what and how creativity is. And so I'm inspired by it. I'm like, you know, then what's going to be the next framework? How, what's a more modern take on trying to understand ourselves in some more holistic way? Because tools like the HBDI clearly, clearly weren't there. And yet the topic of understanding ourselves has, has never been more important than it is today. Yeah, so great point, and I, I want to follow up uh, on, on that with uh, um, uh, some comments. The um, uh, num- number one, uh, I, I think you know we've talked about the future of work, you know, <laughs> sort of ad nausea throughout you know the past year. Yeah, um, and one of the sort of keys to work in the future, especially an AI sort of driven, uh, automated. Uh, future of work is that non-routine, uh, potentially non-routine creative tasks are going to become uh, important and and what uh, or more important than they are now. Um, and 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 part of what this uh, research reinforces, um, and and we have we haven't really delved into this yet, but that uh, it's the sort of practice of these improvisational. Um, uh, types of creative behavior. It's it's the practice and eventual mastery of those uh, that that allows uh, you know these musicians to achieve that that uh, that flow state. Um, and and the key there is that it's it's practice, right? So it's not that creativity. Uh, can be sort of boxed off as something that, you know, that's what artists do or, or that's what musicians do. It's, it's about the practice of, you know, whatever that creative behavior is, you know, sort of again and again and again. Um, and what that enables in these, uh, uh, you know, fMRI scans is, you know, this sort of, uh, ability to more quickly achieve, that flow state, and 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 I think what's exciting about that uh, is the idea that this creative repetition could have you know successful uh, successful output, whether you think you're a quote creative person or not, um, and and that's key as well because I, I think as much as we like to uh, you know sometimes talk about creativity in an egalitarian way, it's also uh, as you know, I, I mentioned uh, a few moments ago. It's it's also you know somewhat feels exclusive or restricted or you know not for everyone. And mm-hmm. and really part of what underlies this uh, you know the findings in this research is that is that yes you know if you practice creativity this is this is sort of a state that uh, you can achieve as well. So I thought I thought that was an important point that practicing creativity is. Um, is something that that uh, that is possible and something that we can do, and, well, that- and certainly that that ties into some broader cultural memes, right? I mean, the, for for some years now, there's been the notion. Um, I don't I don't remember who it was, but 
you know, there was that, that magical 10,000 hours, right? You do, you know, put 10,000 hours into something, and this might not be the exact term that was used, but basically put in 10,000 hours and you'll be an expert. You know, you'll, you'll be great. And it's down this same path where they're saying, look, what we're learning about creativity is if you just get in and do something and learn about it, exactly, that's when you start to be able to be creative and improvisational in it. First, you need that knowledge base. And it, it's, it's the knowledge base that's important. Like, the 10,000 10, hours thing, I mean, that's a soundbite. That's rubbish. Like, yeah, for the average person, maybe 10,000 hours is exactly the number. But in different contexts, you're going to get people who are more skilled and who are less skilled and who need more hours, who need less hours. It's, it's not about that. It's just about figuring it out for yourself. And that might be more. It might be less. Whatever it is, get in and freaking do it. And if you go into a context and you invest yourself in it and you love it and you do it, you're going to get to the point where improvisation, you know, creativity um, are coming out of you in ways that you're doing new, unexpected things that are both extending the medium, but are also going back to, to Dr. Lim's research, um, expressive. It's, it's the expressive part of yourself. And you begin to put yourself into the work, into the creativity, into the context in a way that is both furthering the art, furthering the thing, but is imbuing it with your unique sense of self. And that's super interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, this, this, uh, what's wonderful, I think, about this research into, you know, improvisational neuroscience is it's, it's revealing how human creativity operates. Um, it's revealing sort of the, um, the, the sort of, core functions within our brain that that make it possible, which means that um, as we understand more about it, as you were you were saying, uh, we, we can optimize for for those states, you know, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, assuming that that we all think that that more creativity is a good thing, uh, especially in a, uh, a world where, uh, you know, emerging technologies are changing things so so rapidly. Um, and and I, and I think the takeaway from that is, you know, in part that these are not fixed states. Like the creative brain is something that evolves over time, and that we can enhance our creative uh, abilities over time through practice. Uh, and then ultimately, that uh, you know, w- without calling it uh, retraining or or uh, uh, relearning something, this this idea that we can expand. Uh, creative practice, you know, in the future, so it it um, enables more people to take advantage of uh, a world that is perhaps more automated. It like that that possibility seems like that seems like a hopeful, refreshing possibility. Uh, that that's me being optimistic, maybe, but but that's the conclusion. Being I very optimistic, with. yeah. It's it's a good soundbite, but. I don't know. I think I think it's going to require the regulation of our endocrine system before those things are really realized in any any meaningful way. Like we we need our our brain chemistry. We need the the chemicals in our body to be moderated and and optimized for that to be real. Like I think it's on that level. It's not on the pop psychology level that that we really can bring out like sort of optimal creative function and expression. I think it's I think it's a chemical biological thing. I think it's a harder it's a harder bit, even though that sounds really bad. You know, that doesn't sound as good and inspiring as let's just all, you know, tap into this 
in in sort of more natural behavioral ways. I think it's I think it's much more uh, much more chemical. But maybe that's a topic for a different show. So yeah, we'll we'll leave it there. We'll we'll come back to this topic obviously uh, around neuroscience and uh, you know creative output. But um, yes, food more food for thought. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 256 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.